This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, this is Spinal Tap. It was released in 1984, and I've often believed the world could be split in two ways, and that is those who've seen Spinal Tap and those who haven't. And if you haven't, see it, rent it, because it is one of the funniest movies ever made, and you don't need to have loved or liked any music to appreciate it. Here's Jesse talking about this cult classic. This is Spinal Tap, is a 1984 American rock music mockumentary comedy film written, scored by, and starring Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer. The film betrays the fictional British heavy metal band Spinal Tap. Directed by Reiner, the movie satirizes the wild and personal behavior and musical pretensions of hard rock and heavy metal bands, as well as other rockumentaries that were released around the same time. All of the dialogue in the film was improvised, and many of the scenes focus on trivial matters being blown way out of proportion, like in this scene that portrays a prima donna rock star backstage complaining about the size of a piece of bread. Look, this, this miniature bread, it's like, I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out, let's say I want to Mm -hmm. bite, right? You got this. You'd like bigger bread? Exactly. I yeah. don't understand how. You could it's like fold a... this then. I mean, you could well, fold no, it. then it's half the size. No, not the bread. No, you could fold the meat. You yeah, but then it, then it breaks bread. up. It breaks no, no, apart no, no, no. like you this. Put it on the bread like this, see? But then, if then you then keep it's... folding it, it keeps breaking, well, keep and then you'll, everything has to be folded, and yeah. then it's this. And I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this. Right. So then it's like this. But this doesn't work because then it's all. Because it hangs out like <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right, A. Exhibit, no, right. exhibit A, right. and then we move right. on to this. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKeon were given $10,000 to write the script. They made a 20-minute version of the film to better demonstrate the improvisation they had in mind. Several scenes from the demo are actually in the final movie. Here's director Rob Reiner. Chris and uh, and Michael, for years, had been improvising with these characters, these British rock and rollers, uh, in parties and stuff like that. They'd always been improvising, so uh, we said, "Well, let's do you know, we'll do we'll do a takeoff of these British rockers and we'll put them on, we'll put them in the TV show." And when we were doing the that that segment of the show, they'd improvise, you know, on the set while we were just waiting to you know do do a shot. And it was hysterical. They were in character. And we said, geez, it would be great to find a way to take these characters and do something more than just this little three-minute bit. And so that became kind of the beginnings of what ultimately became Spinal Tap. The faux documentary covers a 1982 United States concert tour by the fictional rock group Spinal Tap to promote their new album called Smell the Glove, interspersed with one-on-one -on -one interviews with the members of the group and footage of the group from previous periods in their fictitious careers. Here again is director Rob Reiner on developing the concept for the film with Harry Shearer, who plays bassist Derek Smalls in the mockumentary. Harry and I had an idea to do a, a film about roadies and what went on backstage in a rock and roll tour. We thought we could make fun and have some fun with it. And then a movie came, a name Roadie came out. We thought, okay, forget that. Meanwhile, Chris and, and, uh, and Michael had done a little short of these two rockers that f you know run into each other in the hotel room and they did it on tape and we kind of gravitated back towards each other and said gee let's 
kind of put this together and maybe we can, you know, make a whole movie about these characters and, and, and a tour and what goes on backstage and that kind of evolved in that way. In the late 1960s, Rob Reiner acted in bit roles in several television shows, including Batman, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Beverly Hillbillies. One of his first films, This Is Spinal Tap. Well, I mean, it wasn't a typical first-time director experience because, like I said, there's no script. And so, you know, it was all improvised and it was all shot like a documentary. So it wasn't, you know, like having to set up shots in a traditional way that a director would, you know, design a movie. I mean, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, improvising as we went along. We just had a basically art. We had a, an outline with an arc, you know, a very loose arc to the whole thing. And then we just kind of improvised the scenes and shoot it like a real tour on, you know, on band on tour and shoot a documentary and then kind of shaped it in the, in the cutting room. It took me nine months to cut that film. So basically the writing for the film was done in the cutting room. We shot for, you know, 25, 30 days, something like that. Uh, but we had a lot, tons and tons of footage. We had, you know, the first cut of the film was seven hours long. We had like, you know, four hours of a film and three hours of interview footage, just me interviewing them in all different, you know, places. So Reiner is the director of the actual film, who also plays the director of This Is Spinal Tap in the film. Reiner says his character was based on another director of a real rockumentary that was popular at the time. We also learn how the film was received by actual rock stars and critics alike. Well, my character is kind of loosely based on Martin Scorsese's character in The Last Waltz, where he was in the film. You know, he kind of put himself in the film, so uh, I call myself Marty DeBerge, which was kind of a cross between Marty Scorsese and... You know, De Sica and Bergman and Fellini and put them all together. They loved it. They loved it. I mean, they saw themselves. And, I, you know, I've talked to rockers over the years. And they've all seen it. And I remember one time when I was doing Princess Pride and Sting came in to meet me for a part. And he said he'd seen the movie like 50 times. He says, every time. He says, I look at it. He says, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And, you know, so many stories of people telling me they have worn out their their videos on bus and on tour on the bus. They throw it on all the time. They watch it. When it first came out, people thought it was a real band. And then people didn't understand why would I make a movie about a band that nobody had ever heard of, and that was so bad. You know, why would you? Why don't you make a movie about a good band like the Stones or something or Led Zeppelin or something like that? But um, they, I said they already made a movie about this Led Zeppelin. I said, no, it's like Saturday Night Live. You know, satire. You know, you make fun of it. Oh, okay, okay. It took a while for people to catch up to it and realize that it was a spoof. This is Spinal Tap was only a modest success upon its initial release. However, the film found greater success and a cult following after it was released on VHS. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the story of the first major Hollywood mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap, released this day in history in 1984 and as always all of our segments even the fun ones and the funny ones are brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college where you can go to study and if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale will come to you visit their online classes all 12 of them at hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu this is our american stories more on spinal tap after these messages
is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn all about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history in 1926, the late Rich DeVos was born. Rich was the owner of the Orlando Magic and the co-founder of the direct selling company Amway that's empowered more than 3 million people with the opportunity to own their own businesses. And our own Alex Cortez brings us his incredible life story. We tell people Haley's Comet was a rare experience only appearing before the human eye once every 75 years. Well, that's rich. I know you can do it because this is a business made for sinners. If you meet a guy like him once every 75 years, consider yourself lucky. It's just made for people who screw up and do it wrong all the time. I think if I wait another 75 years, it would be hard to meet anyone more inspiring than Rich. He said, you're getting pretty old, and we'll give you one little piece of paper so maybe you won't talk too long. Uh, but you'd be surprised how long I can talk on a little card like that. You'll go a lifetime and never meet a man like Rich DeVos. I took Latin once. I graduated on the condition that I'd never take it again. Rich probably would be, you could argue, the most unique businessman in the history of America. The kids in college today go into the social field, you know, they want to want to work for the welfare of others. Well, if you got any guts, you'll get in business, because we provide more welfare than anybody else. We provide employment for 72 million people, that's what we do. had extraordinary success with his business. People say to me, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a cheerleader. I was a cheerleader in high school. I worked after school. I couldn't play sports. So I was a cheerleader, even though they didn't have cheerleaders. I just go out on the floor in the basketball game and I'd lead a cheer. Just because I wanted to. That got me started in being a cheerleader. And all I've done all my life is, it, it, so I run all the world telling all these people, you can do it, you can do it, next thing you know, I got a billion dollars. He's kept his family intact. Well, Helen and I have been married uh, 56 years. So, uh, yeah. we, uh, uh, I'll tell you the secret to doing that. Live long enough. <laughs> Never abandon his faith. I know you didn't come here for a religious sermon. It's okay, I'm not going to stick with it. But I'm just going to let you know. You ought to know where I come from. Has been a extraordinarily generous giver. I give because the Lord told me to give, but more than that, I give here. Because this is our town. The town doesn't owe me anything. I just think he may be one of the most unique businessmen in the history of America. I, I like garbage men, but I went out for four weeks in a row. This fellow comes by at 6.30 in the morning because I wanted to meet him. 
said, hi, how are you this morning? Just came out to tell you I appreciate your coming. He looked at me and he said, are you just getting up or are you just coming in? <laughs> I said, no, I, really, I just came out to say hello. He said, I appreciate you coming by. Now, if you don't think you appreciate his coming by, you just let him skip you a couple times. <laughs> and you'll find out how important he is in your life. You know, about the fourth time I went out there, I said, I'm just come out and say hello again. Do you realize how important the work is that you do? What it does for the sanitation of this community? How it protects the health and welfare of all the people? And he says, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I've been picking up garbage for years, man. Nobody ever told me that. And I say to you, isn't it too bad that a fellow American who's doing what he's able to do has had no one tell him how important his work is? He says, you know, he says, you're one in a million. Well, I don't want to be one in a million. I was born in 1926. That was in the beginning days of a depression. My father was unemployed for many years. We had to move in and live in my grandmother's attic. So that's how we started. Here's Rich's son, Doug. And he remembers a boy coming to the door selling a magazine. The boy was saying, hey, you know, Mr. T talking to his father, to my grandpa saying, hey, I got a magazine I'd like you to buy, and was talking about it, giving the sales pitch, and my grandpa would say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna buy your magazine, and the, the boy would say, you know, please, sir, you know, it's the last one. I, I, you know, if I sell this one, I get to go home, it only costs a dime. And my grandpa had to say, son, I don't have a dime. I can't buy a magazine. So even in that situation, losing home, not having a job, not having any money, to be able to be encouraging. My grandpa was always encouraging. The future's going to be better. We're going to get through this. Something's going to happen. It's not going to stay like this forever. We're not stuck. No matter how bad it seems right now, we're not stuck. I'm going to get a job or get our house back. We're going to just work through this tough time to get to a better time. And I think that's the story that just shaped his life. Being unemployed and all of that, I, I, I was amazed by his positive attitude. He kept saying to me, Whatever you're going to do, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Get in business for yourself. Here's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, Pat Williams. Own your own business, son. That's the only way to control your own future. You know, a lot of people don't think they can do a business of their own. They think they get out of school and try to say, I can't get a job, there aren't any jobs available. Then start a business. Don't sit and wait for other people. When I was in high school, I never thought about going to college. It wasn't on my priority list. When I went to school, they would say, he's not college material. That's what they told about me. He's not smart enough or good enough or whatever. They were probably true at that time. I concluded since then that we all grow up at different speeds. And we all get serious at different times. All my high school years were World War II years. As soon as I got out of high school, I went to war. And I met a guy in high school who became a friend and a business partner for a lifetime. And all we talked about in high school was getting in business. 
And when we come home from the service, we talk about getting in business. That guy's name, Jay Van Andel. And here's his son, Steve. They both went off into the service and they weren't together, so they would write letters back and forth. If you read the letters, what they're talking about is not as much what's happening right now, but what's going to happen when we get out of the service, we're going to start something, what do we want to look at? And every time one of them would see something, they would think this might be an opportunity, they'd write a letter and they'd talk about it. It wasn't like a single idea that they were trying to refine and figure out how to do. They were looking at everything. We started many businesses. We started a flying school, and we didn't know how to fly. We went on a sailboat to sail to the Caribbean. Had never been on a sailboat before. Sank off Cuba. (laughs) Started several other businesses that failed. Started a restaurant once, and I recommend everybody have a restaurant once and get it over with. <laughs> Terrible business. If you want to have one, go get it, but get it over with. But you can do it if that's what you want to do. It just takes a business of dedication. There are no easy businesses. A student then asked Rich, did he ever get discouraged after all this failure? Yeah, you always get discouraged. We just look on to the next thing we're going to try. We were in a toy business, uh, beautiful horses, you know, a nice little flat piece of plywood, a little handle on it, had wheels on it, you could roll, that was going to be great. We never sold one of them. I still burn the wheels in my fireplace, you know. <laughs> we, we, then we made ping pong tables for a while, but, you know, we, we would try everything. And then we started selling Neutralite. We bought a sales kit for $50. So, well, let's go try this, see if we can make this work. And selling Neutralite vitamins became the basis of their great worldwide company, Amway. When we come back, the story of Rich DeVos, born on this day in history in 1926. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American story and Rich DeVos's story. In 1959, Rich and his partner Jay Van Andel founded Amway, the direct selling company that has empowered over 3 million people to start their own independent businesses. And we return to Pat Williams on their precarious beginning. Rich and Jay planned a huge event in nearby Lansing, Michigan. Their goal was to sign up 200 new distributors in the Lansing area. Pretty ambitious goal, by the way. They took out radio ads. They bought uh, costly display ads in the Lansing newspapers. Then they went out and rented a 200-seat auditorium. Now the day of the event has arrived. They walked the streets of Lansing, handing out flyers and 
personally inviting hundreds of people to come. I mean, they could not have been more thorough. So the big night arrives, and Rich and Jay walk out onto the stage of the auditorium, and they face their audience. <laughs> Are you ready for this, gang? Two people. That's right, there were two people in the auditorium. They had spent several thousand dollars and uncounted hours to attract a crowd, and then the, the audience that turned out uh, probably wouldn't have filled a phone booth. They had spent everything that they had on the promotion, and now Rich and Jay had another problem. They, they couldn't afford a hotel room. So they drove home that night, arrived home at about 2 a.m., I think a lot of business people would have probably called it quits then and there. But not Rich and Jay. They persevered. And of course, the rest of the Amway story is history. Sometimes I've had halls as big as this one and two people would show up. And those are the days when you wonder if you're in the right business. You just gotta put your toe in the water. You know? If you're gonna wait till you know everything, you'll never do anything. And you always say, well, i got to check some more. I'm going to do a little more research. So go ahead, just keep going. And you'll never get in a business. You're going to go swimming, you got to get wet. We want to be in business for ourselves. And we had the philosophy that everybody else wanted to be in business for themselves. And if you take surveys today, you'll find that 60 70% of the people in the United States would like to be in business for themselves. But they never get there because they're afraid to jump out and run on their own. So we thought we would develop a plan where you don't have to jump out there on your own, where you can keep your job and do this part-time. They can't go out and start holding meetings and rallying and bring 100 people together because they're still afraid that they don't know how to do this. So learn the business by selling some products. Getting a customer is the key. There are no obstacles in your way of getting a customer. Neutralite was a hard sell. Harder in those days because it was ridiculed. It was such a hard sell that we said, let's sell soap. Everybody uses soap. Most everybody uses soap. Anyway. And that became an easier sell. So that some of the people who didn't have any skills could at least sell Amway home products. That, that was a, a, a level of entry for people as they learn. We all deal with people who say, I can't sell. Well, none of us could sell. But we all learned, didn't we? It's a skill that anybody can learn. Don't buy that story that they can't sell. That, 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 you know, we started to make excuses for people who said they didn't want to sell. We just gradually taught them how to sell. So they sold to their friends and their neighbor and their mother, and then maybe an uncle and an aunt, and, and pretty soon they gained confidence. I remember at our meetings, if somebody made one sale, we'd put them on the stage to tell about it. That was important. That was the biggest thing they'd ever done in their life making one sale. What an event, what a celebration. 
Every time you go out socially, you're making conversation, you're talking, you're selling each other ideas. You know, anybody can sell, because you're doing it all the time. You're trying to sell your kids on getting home on time, or you're trying to tell your kids to study harder. You know, you're selling every day, everywhere. The only difference is now you're gonna get paid for it. But you are a salesman. Everybody can join Amway. There are no restrictions and no requirements. All through the years we've had people say, why don't you tell us what kind of people to look for? We need a test so we can determine who's really good and what kind of people are qualified. And we'll save all this dropout business. And we always said, no, we're not even going to listen to it. Because it was a principle. We didn't, we didn't want restrictions. We wanted anybody from anywhere, from any culture, and any language, and any place on the world to be able to join this business, take charge of their life, and start anew. That's, that's an important foundation, and it's a principle of the business. Opportunity for all. Dick talked to you about some single parents, and all I could do is salute you. And I don't know why it came unraveled for you or what went wrong, and quite frankly, I don't care. It's not on the application. You don't have to explain it to me or to anybody what heart at break or disappointment you've had or what went wrong that night or whatever. You see, because we hold you in high regard as a child of God, regardless of all that. And that's what we can start with. And when we start with that, then all the other things take care of themselves, don't they? So that's the first foundation. Not trying to give you a sermon. I'm just telling you that's, that's where Jay and I came from. And when we sat in the basement and talked about Amway the very first time, we talked about this very subject. And we said, people don't want welfare. This was the age of socialism and everybody saying, well, people just want their unemployment checks and they want all this. And Jay and I said, that's not true. That's just not true. We believe that people want to be free and independent, earn their own way, make their own living. They're willing to work hard because they're worthy people. And on that, we will build a business. And that's how it began. People talk about poor people. You know, there's all these poor people. I said, no, there are not all these poor people. These are temporarily poor people. They just moved on. There is no one fixed group of poor people. That's, that's last year's people. There's a new group moving into that category now. And those who were there, we hope, have moved out of there. Don't think is that a static situation. Sometimes we see a lot of people in poverty and say, well, they're all poor people. No, no. Those are, those are the temporarily poor. They're going to move out of there. We're going to get them out of there. We're going to do everything we can to get them out of there. But they have to take charge of their lives and say, I'm not going to live like this anymore. People move on if we give them hope and chance. You and I got to be in the business of lifting them up. And we don't know where they're going to go, what they're going to do. All we know is they need a pat on the back today. They need an encouraging word from you or a little note. And next thing you know, they're doing something better.
We are the makers of people. And what a unique American voice Rich DeVos's was. The love, the heart, the compassion. People don't need welfare, he said. That's not true. We believe people want to be free and independent. And on that, we will build a business. No final words have been spoken by an American businessman. And when we come back, more on the life of Rich DeVos here on Our American Stories. Continue with the final portion of Rich DeVos's remarkable life story. He was born on this day in history in 1926. And we return to Rich's friend, Don Main. He's a spellbinder of a speaker. And he always talked openly about his faith. And I always thought, well, that's fine for him. If he wants to be religious, I'm getting along just fine without any religion. I was in my mid-50s, middle of a very successful career. And I just thought it was interesting. He always kept mentioning that. And I didn't understand that Rich wasn't talking religion, but he was talking about his relationship with God. One thing he said many times that stuck in my mind, he would always start his speeches off with the same sentence. I am just a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I really am, you know. And I thought, you know, if he's a sinner, what am I? At the same time that this was going on, I became sick. And I had a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Then I underwent two bypass surgeries, and every time that I went in for surgery or was in the uh, heart hospital, Rich would call, and he would call, and he would check on me, and he'd say, how are you doing? And then uh, we would pray on the phone. He would pray for me, and uh, it just gave me such courage Here's another person who was given some courage, Amway pilot, Rick Fiddler. Shortly after takeoff, about 20 minutes later, uh, we experienced a loss of tail rotor, which resulted in us doing an auto rotation and a crash landing into Lake Michigan. We exited the helicopter just before it sank in 320 feet of water. And the Coast Guard eventually got to us about an hour, hour 30 after we were in the water. And the water was 54 degrees, so hypothermia was probably getting very close to setting in. Once we were rescued and back to the Coast Guard station, when I arrived, the commander stopped me and advised that there had been a gentleman on the phone for over an hour waiting for our rescue and that he wanted to talk to us as soon as we got back to the station. He didn't tell him who he was, he just said he worked with us. So I went over and picked up the phone and it was Rich. He wanted to make sure we were okay and he wanted to let us know that he had been praying for us ever since he had heard about the aircraft going down. 
The next day, Rich DeVos decided to fly back to Grand Rapids. All the way from his home in Florida just to do something for this employee. He walked in the hangar and said he wanted to go for a helicopter ride. I said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, I don't care, I just want to go for a ride. So we pushed our other helicopter out back then and we had two. We took off and he decided he wanted to go to Lake Michigan. So we flew out to the lake, flew along the shoreline and then eventually headed back towards Ada. He asked us to land right in front of the plant, in front of all the windows where all the corporate executives sat. And he got out, had us shut the helicopter down and we all stood out there in the front yard for a while and talked before we took off and flew back to the airport. It was very obvious that his goal was to come to Grand Rapids and show us that he had confidence in us as well as show everybody in Ada that he had confidence in us by going for another helicopter ride and making us land right in front of the plant so everybody could see. Uh, when you talk about Rich DeVos uh, as a man, um, I can't say enough about him. He's the one that got us back in the aircraft again within 10 hours of the accident. Here's artist Paul Collins, who happens to be black, on visiting Amway's headquarters for the first time. Went into Ada to have lunch, and I was uh, told, uh, you're going to be working out there doing some stuff for Amway, huh? I said, yeah, those are some weird guys, man. They may not ever pay you. And uh, I didn't pay any attention to it, and I went out and I told Rich about it, and Rich told me, let me tell you something funny. The same guys that told you that about us said, you know, colored boys don't know how to do that kind of work. <laughs> so we both proved them wrong. Rich was colorblind. He could care less about your color. And not only was he helping me to get other people as my backers, uh, he acted like he was my father, really. My father died really early, and he was just really concerned. He would call me. He would come by the house, he would take me places with him, we'd fly in the helicopter together. And uh, he just made so much in my world happen to me, and now I'm known all over the world because of Rich DeVos. Here's Steve Van Andel. I went through some challenging periods where, where my wife passed away and things like that, and he was always encouraging to me. Always kind of came up and said, things always will get better, keep looking forward. He would sign all his notes, love you. He would tell everybody that, I love you. Here's Pat Williams. I've got a number of notes that he has sent me, and he signs them, love you, Rich. Uh, I've got all those notes framed, by the way. Uh, I can imagine there are probably thousands of those notes framed around the world. That's a huge boost to your soul. And here's Ambassador Peter Secchia two years before Rich passed away. Listen, Rich has always signed his letters, love you. And I copied that from him 30 years ago, and I just spell my love L-U-V. But love you, and a smiley face is my signature. His was love you. But the best part of it all is that he would always tell people, love you, thank you. I love you, or Helen and I love you. It was just normal for him to do that. And yes, I've heard it many, many times. And I enjoy it every time he says it to me. And, and we still give each other a hug. He was 90 years old. In fact, tomorrow he'll be 90 years old. And uh, 
I'm sure that uh, when we go to his birthday party, and I'm fortunate enough to be invited, he's having all of his family, all the generations, and three outside guests. Two heart doctors and me. So I'm in high cotton because I know I'm going to be with a man who loves me. And what storytelling from so many people who knew and loved Rich DeVos and that he was quick to express his love with folks. Well, again, that's not something we would ordinarily equate with American businessmen or women, but it was just who he was. By the way, over 6,470 different people posted written tributes to Rich on his memorial website, most of them by the over three million people in the Amway family across the world. And we thought we'd close out this celebration of Rich's extraordinary life by hearing some of the most extraordinary tributes read by the people who wrote them. Thank you for the 19 years of work at Amway Corporation. Many of us knew little about economics and how blessed we were to have those jobs. Working for Amway lifted me and my children out of poverty and allowed me as a single mother to raise my children to be contributing U.S. citizens. The work gave me self-respect and dignity and proved that a female could provide for her family. Rest in peace, Rich. Your legacy lives. Bob and I are very thankful for the extra income we made from our Amway business. It enabled us to adopt our daughter at five and a half months from Korea. She is now married to a great guy, and they have three children of their own. We had four boys at the time. Money was tight, and we probably would not have adopted. We are forever thankful. Bob and Trish Buttleman. He changed my thinking with a simple sentence. Bodo, he said, to become rich, you must not spend your money you make. Yours, Bodo and Gisela from Germany. I'd always wanted to say thank you to Mr. Rich DeVos, because Amway wasn't just a business he started. It was a seed he sowed. We attended an optional Sunday morning service at a business function, and it was at that event we committed our lives to Christ. Whether we succeeded in Amway or moved on to other ventures, every step since then has been directed by the decision we made that day. My heart is with the DeVos family and pray the peace of God that surpasses all understanding be with you all. Thank you for sowing the right seeds. There are thousands of us who are grateful. And sowing the right seeds indeed. I wanted to close with a story about the opening line of all of his speeches, and you heard about it earlier, but it bears repeating. Quote, years ago I was invited to speak, and this is Rich DeVos. Quote, years ago I was invited to speak at a banker's conference at Mackinac Island. The MC gave me this huge flowery introduction. I went on and on. When I finally got up to speak, I said, come on, I know who I really am. I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. The line just came out. A few days later, I received a note from a guy who was in the audience. He wrote, quote, When you said that, something hit me like a lightning bolt. I knew I was a sinner too, and that I had to change my life. God used that line to bring conviction to this man's soul. So today, 
Whenever I'm asked to speak, I tell the crowd, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Regardless of any flowery introductions, that's who I truly am. And he changed so many people's lives with a job, with financial independence. But the real work of Rich DeVos planting those seeds, because he knew in the end, he was a child of God, loved by the God who made him. Rich DeVos's story, are this day in history, he was born in 1926, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when most people think of Butch Cassidy, they think of Paul Newman's characterization in the famous movie, a charming outlaw with an infectious spirit and savvy wit. But the real story of Butch Cassidy is all that and, well, so much more. It's a story of a criminal mastermind, a Western godfather of sorts, who brings organization to the world of unorganized crime. This is the story of how one of the most unlikely fits for criminality became one of the most well-known outlaws of the American West. Butch Cassidy, the last great outlaw of the American West, is born Robert Leroy Parker in Beaver, Utah, on Friday the 13th in April 1866, to a family of Mormon immigrants. He's the first of 13 children born to two of the earliest Mormon settlers, Maximilian and Ann Parker. In 1879, Maximilian buys a homestead in Circle Valley, and 13-year-old Robert Leroy, or Roy as he is called, is thought old enough to help support the family and is sent off to work at a nearby ranch. Here's Tom Hatch, author of The Last Outlaws. Bob Parker was the oldest of 13 kids, and so he became the surrogate father, and he would take care of the kids. Bob was like a big kid himself, and he was throughout his whole life. He was a very gregarious man who made friends wherever he went because of his personality. His mother homeschooled the kids, mostly on the Bible. She would hold services there. He absolutely adored his mother. Here's Michael Rudder, author of Wild Bunch of Women. His mother was very devout. The family was strict. There was a confirmed right and wrong. There were fundamental Christian values in the family. Gale force winds and droughts make life on the Parker homestead a struggle. Maximilian decides to homestead additional acreage in the valley, but rights to the new property are contested by another settler. By Mormon custom, the dispute is mediated by the local church bishop. The bishop awards the land to the other settler, who is thought more faithful to the church. Maximilian is furious. Young Roy is furious also. He feels the Mormon religion has been used to cheat his family out of their land. Roy sets out to support his family by hiring out again this time at Jim Marshall's ranch. During Roy's second season 
at Marshall's Ranch, he meets a man who would forever alter the direction of his life, small-time cattle rustler Mike Cassidy. Here's Utah historian Ken Verdoya. Mike Cassidy. He's a well-known horseman, and he's great with a revolver, an excellent shot and marksman. And Cassidy takes a liking to little Bobby Parker, teaches him how to really ride a horse, teaches him how to handle a revolver, how to become a good marksman. And more importantly, Mike Cassidy shows him how to cut corners. There's big cattle operations, and they'll never miss it if one or two or 10 of the herd gets cut away and goes to another place. And Robert Parker watched Mike Cassidy acquire cattle and horses in that fashion. In the summer of 1884, Roy Parker is 18 years old and full grown, stands five foot nine and weighs 165 pounds. He's described as friendly, good-natured, loyal, and generous. He also has an infectious grin and is a natural leader. A ranch cowboy says Roy can ride around a tree at full speed and put every bullet from his revolver into a three-inch circle. Mike Cassidy has taught the kid well. His wrestling soon becomes known to the local authorities, though, and he leaves for the gold-mining boomtown of Telluride, Colorado. Some claim the town got its name from a quick pronunciation of Telluride. For a young man seeking adventure, Roy has come to the right place. Rugged frontiersmen pack Telluride's famed saloons, gambling halls, and houses of ill repute. Here's historians of the Old West, Paul Hutton and Tom Hatch. Robert Parker goes to a world that couldn't be more different. This is the wild boomtown world of the mining camp. So a lot of gambling, a lot of drinking, a lot of prostitution, a lot of young men, heavily armed and fueled by alcohol. He went in there with a Mormon mind, and within a week or two, I'm sure he'd been in every saloon there, and he learned how to drink with the best of them, and he gambled with the best of them, and he didn't feel comfortable in Mormon country, but he felt comfortable in Telluride. Roy lands a grueling job running a pack train of mules, hauling gold and silver ore from the mines to the mills. He soon wearies of the drudgery. Going in the mines each and every day, Robert Parker looks at that as a sucker's bet. You're coming out bone weary, you could die down there, and what have you earned at the end of the day? But on the corner is the San Miguel Bank. Roy, with two of his new friends, a lapsed Mormon named Matt Warner, and Warner's brother-in-law, Tom McCarty, pulls his first major criminal job, the robbery of the San Miguel Valley Bank of Telluride on June 24th, 1889. Now, most attempts at robbing banks in the Old West fail miserably because of poor planning or no planning at all. Roy is undeterred by the odds against him, and for good reason. From the very beginning, he had a methodology. He wasn't just one of these wild riders like the movies make so famous. He was very methodical, he was very careful, he was very intelligent. Parker knew 
It's not just about where the money is, but knowing when it will be at its peak. When will the cash arrive? Who handles the cash? How many people are in the building at the time when the cash is at its peak? And more importantly than that, how will I make my escape? And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy, his story, here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Butch Cassidy. Roy Parker's accomplice, Tom McCarty, is an old hand at bank robbery, and he impresses upon Roy the importance of not only planning each step of the robbery, but also each step of the getaway. Several weeks before robbery, Roy will train and harden horses to be used in the getaway. Blooded animals are selected, grain-fed, and exercised rigorously. When the first relay is reached, Rory switches to thoroughbreds, able to maintain a swift pace over a long distance. If necessary, a second and a third relay of horses is used. This masterstroke will become Roy Parker's signature technique. The robbery of the bank at Telluride goes exactly as planned and Roy and the others gallop out of town. Here's Ken Verdoya and True West Magazine contributor, Tom Ross. And this is the genius of Robert Parker. He had planned the escape even better than he had planned the holdup. This is the first of his great escapades where they wind up with big money. I mean, you walk away from a bank with $20,000, and you're looking at it, what a cowboy might take him five or ten years to make if he saved every penny. This is a serious crime. It's one thing to take a few cows or take a couple horses, but this is big-time robbery. There's no going back. There's no going back. Red Parker knows his deed will break the heart of his pious mother and decides to deflect shame from his family. He drops a family name and begins using the surname Cassidy in honor of his mentor. He will later also add the nickname Butch and become known to history as Butch Cassidy. The steep canyons and unforgiving terrain that make up the 1,500-mile-long stretch of wilderness that runs from New Mexico to Montana is known as the Outlaw Trail. A series of hideouts on the trail are notorious, with the names Robber's Roost, Brown's Hole, and Hole in the Wall. One of the benefits of being a Western outlaw is space. The American West is vast. It's cut by canyons, and mountain ranges, river trails. A lot of places, there's only one way in, and so it's easy to guard, it's easy to see who's coming. 
And so these become natural fortifications for the outlaw bands to hide in. And if you're a lawman, and especially if you're just a civilian posse, you're not going in there. It's suicide. In 1890, Butch moves up the outlaw trail to the Wyoming hideout, hole in the wall. In April 1892, a couple of lawmen arrest Butch for being in possession of three stolen horses. Now, Butch claims he purchased the horses fair and square, and that seems to have been the case. However, the man he had purchased them from had stolen the horses. In July 1894, he is sentenced to two years in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. After serving 18 months, Butch applies for a pardon. William Richards, the governor of Wyoming, asks Cassidy, will you give me your word that you're quit rustling? Butch replies, can't do that, governor, because if I gave you my word, I'd only have to break it. I'm in too deep now to quit the game, but I'll promise you one thing. If you give me a pardon, I'll keep out of Wyoming. Well, Cassidy's frankness wins over Governor Richards. The governor signs the pardon, and in January 1896, Butch Cassidy walks out of the penitentiary a free man. If Butch Cassidy was a minor outlaw before he went to prison, upon his release, he's determined to make a name for himself. Butch begins to gather together a group of outlaws who will become known as the Wild Bunch. Here's Cassidy biographer, W.C. Jameson. Cassidy referred to the group not as the Wild Bunch, but as the Train Robbers Syndicate. Now, this suggested a level of, of organization and perhaps a, a certain level of sophistication among this outlaw that cuts above the average outlaw of the day. Among this band of strong personalities, Butch is the clear leader. There was no job that he couldn't do. I think the others in the gang recognized his confidence, recognized his leadership, and thought that with this guy, we're gonna be able to do some cool things. Butch handpicks each member of the gang and expects the best from those who ride with him. The core members include William Elsie Lay, Harvey Kit Curry Logan, Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick, Will News Carver, and lastly, the 21-year-old introvert, Harry Longabaugh, the man known to history as the Sundance Kid. Sundance was born Harry Longabaugh, about 30 miles north of Philadelphia, and he grew up basically on the canals. He would work probably 20 hours a day sometimes, and he would walk 25 miles each day. But Harry had dreams. He paid one whole dollar for a library card, which was quite a bit of money at that time to a poor boy. And he read these pulp novels about Jesse James and Buffalo Bill. This is where dreams of the West came into his head. I think it's difficult to understand today the lure of adventure that existed in the late 19th century, especially for a young boy like Harry growing up in Pennsylvania. The West offered everything that the society of the East seemed to work against. 
And a lot of young men went west in search of adventure. The 20-year-old Longbaugh earns his nickname, the Sundance Kid, after having served a year in the Sundance Wyoming jail for horse theft. In 1892, Sundance Kid and two accomplices rob a great northern railroad train at Malta, Montana. The accomplices are eventually captured, tried, and convicted. But the Sundance Kid makes good his escape and is introduced to Butch Cassidy on the outlaw trail. Butch saw in Sundance someone he could trust, number one. And number two, someone he could bounce his ideas off of, and they would go nowhere else. Butch Cassidy's first robbery following his release from the Wyoming State Penitentiary occurs in August 1896 at Mount Pelier, Idaho. As usual, Butch's caper is conducted with impeccable execution, a breathtaking escape, and not a single dead body. They get away with more than $7,000, something like a quarter million in today's money. Butch understood one simple premise. He didn't have to kill people. Some would go into a robbery and kill just to silence voices. Butch said, if my getaway is clean enough, I don't have to silence voices. Butch Cassidy's next heist is a daring daylight robbery at Castlegate, Utah in April 1897. The Denver and Rio Grande train arrives at Castlegate with the Pleasant Valley Coal Company's entire payroll aboard. The crowd of miners barely notice two horsemen riding up to the general store. The horsemen are Butch Cassidy and L.Z. Lay. When the paymaster brings the payroll from the train, Butch jumps in his path. Beg your pardon, mister. Puts a gun in his ribs and takes the satchel. Before the astonished crowd can react, Butch is back in the saddle and galloping out of town. This is not just some drunken punk's full of shenanigans. This is the kind of stuff that puts him on the map. We've been robbed! A station agent tries to telegraph Price, Utah, the direction the outlaws seem to be headed. But Cassidy and Lay have cut the wires. Cassidy and Lay then escape by a circuitous route with fresh relays of horses and eventually reach Brown's Hole some $8,000 richer, more than a quarter of a million today. And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy. And to learn and hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and subscribe to our newsletter. Give us your email address and you'll get the five best stories that we have each week directly into your inbox. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. More on the life of Butch Cassidy after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Butch and his boys returning to their hideout on the infamous Outlaw Trail. Let's return to the story and find out more about this Old West den of thieves. Along the Outlaw Trail, you have people that become the backbone of the Wild Bunch. They're the ones who provide the horses. They're the ones that offer a meal when they're on the run. These are the people that many times are able to keep their farms or their ranches because of a few $20 gold pieces that are dropped behind by Butch and Sundance as they make their way. By 1898, news of the charismatic Cassidy and his wild bunch begin to make headlines from San Francisco to New York. But along with their success, as America approaches the 20th century, the once wild and free West is being transformed. 30 years of unprecedented expansion of fast transportation and communication systems have connected the settled and civilized East with the once wild and woolly American West. Powerful railroad executives, mining barons, and cattle kings are tired of being robbed by Western outlaws and turn to a powerful ally to impose their own brand of law and order, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Here's historians of the American West, Marshall Trimble and Andrew Nelson. They were a private detective agency, therefore they weren't bound by the laws of regular lawmen. Bribery, deceit, nothing is off the table for the Pinkertons. And they are just as, if not more, sophisticated than Butch Cassidy. They also have assembled a crew of diverse talents. Founded 50 years earlier by Scottish immigrant Alan Pinkerton, the agency is America's first private detective outfit for hire. Pinkerton's logo, a simple, unblinking eye underlined by the words, we never sleep, adds a new term to the American lexicon, private eye. Alan Pinkerton pioneers the use of undercover agents and webs of informants. During the Civil War, he's even recruited by Abraham Lincoln to run spy operations for the Union Army. The Pinkertons have over 2,000 full-time agents and 30,000 paid informants and part-time regulars. Their standing force is larger than the standing force of the United States Army at its time. And they get called out to bring justice to the American West. The Pinkertons embodied the modern age. They brought everything together, memoranda, files, regional offices, photography, everything. Butchin's Wild Bunch are now wanted dead or alive. But as usual, Butch has planned ahead, keeping an attorney on retainer to protect him and his men. Douglas Preston is Butch Cassidy's lawyer. Whenever any of the Wild Bunch gets in trouble, it is Preston who defends them, usually with success. Preston later becomes a state legislator and then the Attorney General of Wyoming. Preston says that once upon a time, during a saloon brawl, Cassidy saved his life, and in gratitude, he promised to defend Butch whenever the need should arise. Now, after the Civil War, outlaws begin targeting trains, 
starting with the Reno brothers in 1866 and followed by others such as Jesse James and Sam Bass. They make quick work of railroad express cars packed with money and lumbering through remote locations far from local posses. Most train robberies were successful. Everybody knew that. Banks got a little more difficult, but trains were fairly easy to rob because they hadn't put armed messengers on them. They hadn't taken any precautions whatsoever with security. Butch and his train robber syndicate pulled the first train robbery in the desolate countryside of Wilcox, Wyoming in June 1899. The flyer is coming down the tracks. They're about ready to cross a wood trestle bridge. And we see a couple guys with a lantern shaking it back and forth to stop the train. Usually it meant a washed out track or damaged track ahead and the train should stop. Any engineer in his right mind goes, we gotta lock up the brakes. The train stops before the trestle. The people on the train are nervous. We don't stop trains in the middle of the desert, but it just happened. The engineer thought that the bridge might have been washed out. Little did he know that these were robbers up on the tracks. They pull apart passenger cars, separate them from the engine and the car which carries the safe. Butch and the boys then surround the express car and shout to the messenger inside to open the door. Ernest Woodcock replies, come in and get me. Is it a dud? Butch answers by lobbing a stick of dynamite under the car. Got a dud. The blast blows out one side of the car. Woodcock has thrown the entire length of the car and knocked groggy. Harvey Logan jumps into the car and puts a revolver to Woodcock's head. Butch yells at Logan, let him alone. A man with his nerve deserves not to be shot. The gang then blows the safe apart with still more dynamite. Too much, in fact. Bonds and money are blown everywhere, and the outlaws have to scurry about to gather together some $30,000 in loot. All right, boys. We gotta go. That's around one million in today's money. It's the most spectacular robbery the West has ever seen. A few hours later, a special train is dispatched to the scene from Cheyenne, 120 miles away. The train carries railroad detectives, Pinkerton detectives, and a posse with horses. The lawmen rendezvous at Wilcox and then set out upon the trail of the Wild Bunch. Here's historian David Eisenbach. If they could nail Butch Cassidy, no matter how much money they and resources they devoted to this, the fame of the agency would become so great that it would pay off in the long run with other jobs that they would get. And they would literally go to the ends of the earth to do it. The Pinkertons put two of their best operatives, Charlie Seringo and W.O. Sales, on the assignment. These pros don't follow hoofprints in the dirt. Instead, they begin methodically tracking serial numbers on the banknotes stolen at Wilcox. Soon, the stolen money begins to surface in towns across the region. Unintentionally, 
the Wild Bunch members are illuminating their own trail. Because of the dynamite blowing it up, a whole bunch of the bills had cuts on the bottom. And so they knew that if they got one of the bills that had a cut in a certain way, it was from this robbery. All of this stuff worked against these antiquated horse-powered cowboys who were trying to steal this money. You know, they're up against serial numbers. No contest. One by one, the hideouts for the Wild Bunch have been penetrated. Moreover, by 1900, several members of the Wild Bunch have been killed or captured. Thanks to a tip, Butch nearly escapes capture by a Pinkerton detective and decide it's time to call it quits. It's like a noose getting tighter and tighter. And Butch is smart enough to understand this. He's smart enough to see that now all of the Pinkerton's resources are focused on the Wild Bunch and they're never going to give up. They won't stop. And when we come back, the final segment in this remarkable story, Butch Cassidy's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency dedicating all of its resources towards the capture of outlaw Butch Cassidy Butch is forced to get even more creative. Let's return to the story. Working with his lawyer, Douglas Preston Butch agrees to meet with Union Pacific representatives to negotiate a truce. The railroad will drop charges against him in exchange for him working as a railroad express card. To avoid any chance of treachery, Butch asks that Preston bring the railroad officials to the remote Lost Soldier Stage Station at the base of Green Mountain in Wyoming. The railroad contingent, who are ready to make a deal, well, that contingent is delayed en route by a storm, and when the hour of the rendezvous comes and goes without Preston, and without the Union Pacific representatives showing up, Butch is left alone and thinking he's been stood up, or worse, set up. In what would have been a historic meeting, Butch becomes impatient and leaves behind an angry note. Damn you, Preston, you double-crossed me. I waited all day, but you didn't show up. Tell the UP to go to hell, and you can go with them. As a result of what Butch believes to be the Union Pacific's treachery, he decides to strike against the railroad as soon as possible. On a warm evening in August 1900, the boys stop the Union Pacific at Tipton, Wyoming. Butch finds that the messenger inside the express car is none other than the clerk from the previous Wilcox robbery, Ernest Woodcock. Again, the brave messenger refuses to open the door. 
Seeing the wild bunch's dynamite, though, the conductor convinces Woodcock to comply this time. The outlaws then dynamite the safe and take an estimated 55,000. Butch now thinks he should leave the once wide open American West and try his luck in South America. Here's historian Gerald Copen. Butch wants to go to a place that's more like the Western United States was, say, 20 years before, where you don't have the Pinkertons to worry about and where law enforcement isn't quite as effective. Before he leaves, Butch, Sundance, and three of the core members of the Wild Bunch rendezvous in the roaring cattle boom town of Fort Worth, Texas, to live it up in Hell's Half Acre, the Red Light District. Decked out like the businessmen they are robbing, the five men commemorate their adventure by posing for a group photograph. Ironically, for the master planner, it will be this relatively new technological innovation that will result in the biggest blunder of an otherwise brilliant criminal career. The photographer put this photograph in his window as advertisement for his skill. Unfortunately, a local lawman goes by, recognizes one of the boys in the photo, and soon that photo is circulated throughout the Pinkerton Detective Agency and throughout the West. They made flyers with pictures of Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, all the Wild Bunch. They plastered those pictures up everywhere, and they had them in the hands of all their operatives. Now, indeed, you couldn't escape the eye that never slept, because it really had you. Butch splits up the gang, and by February 1901, Cassidy, Sundance, and his mysterious girlfriend the absolute knockout in a place. Spend several weeks living the high life in the modern metropolis of New York City. From there, they leave on a steamship for Argentina. It seemed like they had a chance to start over, to reinvent themselves. The old days are over. Butch and Sundance get out just in time. Two years after Butch and Sundance leave for Argentina, Edwin Porter's The Great Train Robbery, one of the first motion pictures, is captivating New York audiences in 1903. By 1903, the story of the Wild West, the story of Butch and Sundance, has already become fodder for mass entertainment. So famous is the Wild Bunch that Buffalo Bill Cody in his Wild West show, which is playing not only all across America, but to the crown heads of Europe, features one of their train robberies. I mean, I think to the American public, Butch and Sundance are gone. It's over. That's why they're making movies. It's a show. It's a show now. In the winter of 1903, Pinkerton informants in Pennsylvania intercept a letter Sundance sends to his family. In South America, Butch Cassidy may have forgotten about the Pinkertons, but the Pinkertons certainly had not forgotten about Butch Cassidy. You'll have to enter this, please, sir. Yes, sir. They were still employing every tool and every method at their disposal to bring him to justice. That included intercepting mail. I need to send a telegram. 
to Argentina. Butch Cassidy has been cited. On the run from Argentine authorities in a need of cash, Butch and Sundance return to what they know best. Along with Etta Place, they take 10,000 from the National Bank in Central Argentina and 20,000 from Bank in Rio Gallegos. In 1907, Etta Place returns to the United States for medical treatment and Butch and Sundance rob a mule train with a payroll for the Alpoca mine in southern Bolivia. Within hours of the heist, the telegraph wires begin humming. Even in the wilds of South America, the civilizing forces of westward expansion have caught up with Butch and Sundance. Every town in the area is supplied with descriptions of what they call banditos yaqui. Butch makes the mistake of taking not only the gold, but also a big silver-gray mule. Sometime later, Butch and Sundance ride into the village of San Vicente, where a hotel owner recognizes the mule and grows suspicious. While his wife prepares a meal for Butch and Sundance, he rides to alert a nearby troop of Bolivian cavalry. He led three people down to this home. One of the soldiers went onto the patio, drew his weapon. Butch saw his silhouette through the window and pulled out his six gun. And shot the guy dead. First person, the only person that Butch ever killed. Meanwhile, the word goes out and other residents of the town, heavily armed, now come to surround the house. They're surrounded. They're not going anywhere. There's no way they're getting out of there. The shooting becomes general. Butch and Sundance had put their Winchesters in extra ammunition across the patio. And now Sundance makes a dash for them. He miraculously gets to the rifles and ammo unscathed. But on his return dash, is hit by several rounds and drops to the ground. Butch runs out and drags him back to cover. The two continue fighting, but Sundance is fading fast and dies. Butch has one round left. With that last bullet, he shoots himself. Butch Cassidy, the one-time Mormon boy named Robert Leroy Parker, is dead at 42 years old. The two are laid to rest in unmarked Bolivian graves. But there are some who believe these famous outlaws had not yet met their end. Almost immediately, stories began that they hadn't been killed in Bolivia. We don't want the outlaws to die. We certainly don't want them to die the way Butch and Sundance died. As wild as they were, as bad as they were, still represented something that Americans embrace, that wild freedom. And when they're gone, the Wild West is gone. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler on all these long pieces there. They're available always on our website. I'll get to that in a bit. And thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, who does our Western pieces. Uh, Greg had studied with him in college out on the West Coast, 
And Roger McGrath is author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And we just love the sound of his voice. And we love that he does the work he does for us and for all of you listening. And by the way, if you want to hear more from us and hear more of our stories, you can subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll give you our five best stories of the week every week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and the five best stories of the week will find their way into your inbox. And folks, let friends and family know about this show. We're trying to tell the stories that no one else is telling, good stories about America's past, its present, and, of course, its future. Go to Our American Network again and sign up for our newsletter and share what we do with the folks around you and the folks close to you. Butch Cassidy's life story here on Our American Stories. And again, go to Our American Network and hear all that we do are this day in histories. My goodness, they're up there for all to see. Our own leadership stories, they're there. Everything's there up on OurAmericanNetwork.org.